Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest installment of For What It's Worth podcast. Uh, Wow, what a day. So much happening here. Getting ready for the big rally in Tulsa tonight. I'll be in the front row with my placard and my, uh, without my mask, ready to do battle with the virus and the rest of my fellow Americans. Just kidding. I won't be there. Now, we're going to have the same format this week as we've had every week. Uh, Who is this podcast for? Our hero of the week and the question of the week. And before we get to our points, but we've got to, I've got to make some political commentary here. I'm also holding my phone underneath the desk that I'm sitting at because the phone puts out so much radiation that it screws up my audio recorder and everything else. I am Dan Milner, your host, the original DM, the original direct message directly into your medulla oblongata. Under no circumstances do you leave your desk once this has started playing because it's too important. I have too many critical topics for us to talk about. Uh, I had a really interesting podcast yesterday. Not a podcast yesterday. I had a very interesting YouTube Live with my friend Mark from Advancing Your Photography. The topic was, I forget how he had labeled it on his channel. Oh, your attitude as a photographer matters. It was kind of a topic that was very unlike anything I've done before. Most of the time we talk photography. This was about uh, something I spoke about last week on this podcast, which is the expression, I hate everything. Something that I really hadn't heard prior to the internet. It was something I think born from the internet, a general malaise that has taken over a lot of creatives. And this has nothing to do with COVID. This happened a long time ago. And the fact that many of these people really don't hate everything, but it's a sort of attitude that allows you to think that that attitude is, or that option is a viable option for being a creative. And it's, it's really not. And once you have it, it's almost impossible to get rid of. And the fact that if you have it and people find out, you're not going to get work because they just don't want to deal with people like that anymore. I was telling stories back in the eighties when I started in photography, there were some notoriously difficult, obtuse Uh, people who were working in the industry that were working all the time, and they were legendarily horrible human beings. They were horrible to their subjects. They were horrible to their assistants. They were horrible to their locations where they were photographing everyone around them. They were tyrants. They were just horrible. I'd actually encountered a couple of these before. Luckily, I was not working with them, and I could tell them to F off, but some of these were the biggest names in the in photography, and some of them still are, actually, um, but they don't work anymore. And the reason is that people just got to the point of saying, we don't want to work with you anymore. In fact, a friend of mine owns a hotel, had to throw one of these people out, came into her, into her room and said, you, you need to leave and you're never coming back on this property because the way you treat your assistants and the way you treat people around here. And so my point is, if it, this is just a public service announcement before we go any further. If this is if you are falling into this category, it's okay. I mean, there's a lot of natural forces out there that are forcing people to go in. If you're a hater, I should say. I guess that's the easiest way of saying it. And it's funny because I have friends who are incredibly talented who hate everything you put in front of them, literally. Whether it's if you put a book in front of them, it would be, I don't like this paper. I don't like the cover. I don't like the design. I don't like – and if it's a photograph, there's never, ever been a photograph ever made by them or anyone else that's any good. They just hate everything. And so it's um, – you don't want to be in that category. That's all I'm going to say. Now, you might hear a tapping sound in the background. I can hear it. I can certainly hear it. You know what that is? If I gave you a million guesses, you would never figure out what it is, ever. That is the top of my crock pot. And the top of the crock pot is probably bouncing up and down. Inside is a delicious red curry, vegetable, vegan red curry. Did I mention I'm a vegan? I hope I didn't because I'm not. I just was curious if I had done that for any reason. But it is a vegetarian, probably vegan for all I know. Red curry. Incredible. It's ready to go down. Okay. Before we go, just a little political commentary. I think, uh, I guess the word I want to use about America right now is radicalize, radicalization. Uh, we have now become so radicalized, radicalized into, our, into our political columns and funnels that we can no longer think rationally. We look at each other as the enemy. We've turned a surgical mask into a political statement, which is a really hard thing to do. I mean, if you were looking at an object and trying to say, hmm, Let's find something that's nearly impossible to turn into a political scenario or a political battleground. How about the surgical mask? Yeah, well, we've managed, America. Congratulations. 
the COVID-19 is spiking. Uh, I am surrounded. New Mexico and Colorado are completely and utterly surrounded on all three sides, and that's not including Mexico. So if you throw Mexico into the south, they are exploding as well. In terms of COVID cases, uh, Americans are acting like spoiled children and radicalized individuals. Again, I made this point last week. We fought al-Qaeda for 25 years. And when you look around the country, you can see some of that same radicalized ideology here. Um, but of course, you can't say that because, um, you know, we're Americans and we're, we're better than you. So you foreigners out there listening to this, it's just a quick reminder. Texas and Florida are probably the two best shining examples of radicalized states led by terrified science deniers who are absolute, or absolutely mortified that Donnie will tweet something about them. The guy in Florida, DeSantos, I think his name is, DeSantis, DeSantos, one of those. If I keep saying it long enough, I'll get it. He is just an absolute buffoon. But so they have Marco Rubio and Rick Scott. So Florida's really already struck out. You know, they struck out without making contact and then fell down while they were swinging. They've, that's how they've handled COVID. Uh, Texas is not much better. Uh, the, the governor is a complete buffoon who is beholden to uh, Donnie and his crew, and they cannot do or say anything that goes against Trump. So it's going to get really bad here, which sucks because there's so many people hurting financially from this, not to mention the, the medical side, but just financially, we've just crushed ourselves. And the longer we pretend as if this isn't happening is going to make it worse and worse and worse. I think we're now looking well into 2021 before this sorts itself out, if it does at all. And uh, I don't see any help coming from the federal level whatsoever. I see help coming from the state level. Those states, sadly, I have to say it, the states who, that are not Republican have who have they don't have science deniers at the helm who are not beholden to Trump are not afraid of his his uh, Twitter feed they're at least making an effort and I'll use New Mexico as an example Michelle Lujan Grisham has done a really good job so far and that we have crazy Republicans here too who are trying to have her impeached for for locking the state down because again they're terrified they're trying to make they're trying to get Trump's attention and say, look at me, look at me, I love you, and uh, that kind of thing. But she's done a good job so far. But we're not out of the woods by any stretch. Cases, we still have new cases here on a daily basis, but uh, it's minuscule compared to other places like Texas and Florida. Uh, and I think what it's done is that we've kind of proven ourselves to be one of the, I guess, the, the most poorly educated countries on the on the earth um just by watching what's happened okay so let's let's move on who's this podcast for if you're if you're this far into this episode and you are saying god this guy is like he's he's like a messiah why haven't i listened to this before well if you thought don johnson deserved deserved a nobel prize for portraying the single most complete human being who ever lived james sonny crockett on the 1980s television series miami vice if you thought he got jobbed out of the 1984 Nobel Prize for his work on Miami Vice, then this is for you. Come on board. Welcome. Keep your hands and feet inside at all times, but this podcast is for you. The hero of the week is twofold. Number one, Canada, I love you. Uh, I'm here for you. I'm waiting for my invitation to come up and be a part of society. I don't know if I'm going to give up my American passport, but I would gladly tuck a second maple leaf into my hip for those exotic countries where we've sort of burned our bridge, if you know what I mean. Wink, wink. Uh, and our hero of the week is Tim Horton. Timmy, anyone who's taken on the big chains, the big Starbuckses of the world and the McDonald's of the world, Tim Horton, and if I, if I can get to my phone without melting my, my, uh, my, my dealie here, uh, Tim Horton, and this is from Wikipedia because it's completely accurate, it's a fast food restaurant chain specializing in coffee, donuts, and other fast food items. It's Canada's largest quick service restaurant chain, as of December 2018, had a total of almost 5,000 restaurants in 14 countries. Headquartered in Toronto, eh? Uh, man, I'd love to kill a dart with this guy. But uh, my, a friend of mine did a, a piece one time. He's Canadian, oddly enough. Did a photo essay on... See, hear that? Hear that? That's my phone. That's my phone doing that through the table, by the way. It's not far enough away. Sorry, I'm bent over trying to... Holy crap. Just imagine what that's doing to my melon. Okay, I'm back. It's further away now, face down in a, in a Faraday cage. Okay, so Timmy Horton is our first hero of the week. Canada, the guy's a god. He can do anything. He has never done anything wrong, and he is a beacon, a shining light for the rest of us. The second hero of the week, and I don't have his bio pulled up, but I want you to look him up because for any of you out there who are creative, 
for anybody into photography, for anybody into bookmaking, for anyone who has used a print-on-demand service anywhere in the world, I want you to look up a guy named Alon Barshani, A-L-O-N, last name B-A-R-S-H-A-N-Y. Alon Barshani was Mr. HP Indigo. HP Indigo Printers. He is the man. And I want to say he's Israeli. And for anyone who out there who's ever used this technology, he's the guy that deserves a thank you because he's the one. Now, he's not dead. He's just stepping away and doing something else from what I understand. But it's in the world of printing, it's a big deal. Like he's the, I don't know if he's the Tiger Woods of printing, but he's, let me think of another I don't know anything about golf. We're going to talk about golf in a minute. And I, I effing hate golf. Not the sport itself. Hitting a ball with a crooked stick and then walking after it. I get that. I really get that. But it's the whole surrounding stuff about it. But I found another sport that I think you're all going to love. And there's a huge difference between golf and watching this other sport on YouTube. And I'm going to defend the other sport to the tooth and nail to my death because it is so magical on YouTube to watch it. But Alon Barshani is not maybe the Tiger Woods, but maybe he is the, I don't know. Oh, 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 he's the, um, who am I thinking of? Um, God, I'm spacing on his name. I can see his, uh, his face. Oh, well, forget it. He's important. Look him up. Question of the week, which relates to who is this podcast for? My question is, did Miami Vice change? With the destruction of the of the Ferrari Daytona, when they switched from the Ferrari Daytona to the Testarossa, I think that there was a monumental shift in the program. Everything, the wardrobe, the hairstyle. I think he started growing the short ponytail, and that all coincided with the Testarossa. I was a huge fan of the black Daytona convertible. That when I think Miami Vice, I think the black Daytona. Yes, it got blown up with a Laws rocket. But the Testarossa didn't have, have the same, you know, the same swagger to me that it did. But anyway, that's my question. I can't answer it. It's just a feeling I've had since 1986, and I can't seem to shake it. And I know that there's some of you out there that probably have the same feeling. So uh, if you do, I'm sorry, and I don't have an answer for you. There's things on this earth that I cannot, I cannot figure out. Okay, um, I found something pretty interesting. So we had a little problem here in Albuquerque. We've, we've had Black Lives Matter protests as well, Albuquerque and Santa Fe, but one in particular kind of went sideways, and that was down in Albuquerque when um, a militia who was definitely not invited to the protest decided to show up, and they started causing some trouble. And it got me thinking about militias in general. I'm not a militia fan because most of my experience running into people who are in militias is they're not really about the cause that they think they tell you that they're about. They're about playing with their guns and customizing their AR-15s and being in online chat rooms by themselves, getting all stirred up about things like people coming after them, no-knock warrants, um, immigrants coming in and taking all the jobs. They, they tend to spend a lot of time in online forums talking about uh, non-existent threats to them and society itself. So they decided to show up, and it's a New, Me New Mexico militia that showed up at this protest, and someone got shot. And it was funny to me, they claimed that they were there to help everyone and to keep the peace. But when you roll in in full camo, whatever, 15, 20 guys in full camo holding AR-15s, that has absolutely nothing to do with keeping the peace. That is you saying, hey, look, we've finally got a reason to come out in public with our guns and throw our weight around. It doesn't matter what the protests were doing. It has nothing to do with the militia. And the funny part is that these guys will always hold up two things in defense of whatever it is that they are doing. They hold up the flag and they hold up the Constitution. But the funny part is they cherry pick both of those things. They only cherry pick the pieces that hold up the idea that they can wear camo and carry AR, custom AR-15. Not any. What, what kind of complete loser shows up with a regular AR-15? The AR-15 is like the Honda Civic of handguns. It's, there's every customization ever made for any vehicle out there. You know, the, the, the kids who race the Honda Civics on the street, you've seen them. They're lowered, they're slammed, they're wheels, there's, there's uh, exhaust systems and turbos and nitrous. You can get anything you want for a Honda Civic, right? Because you cannot kill a Honda Civic. 
It's like a Toyota pickup truck. You cannot destroy it. So the, there's every customization available that you can possibly imagine. And the same thing applies to the AR-15. So what kind of loser hack shows up with a, with a normal AR-15? You got to have a custom one. And that's really what these displays are about, is they get to wear their camo, their backpacks, their patches, their baseball hats, chew tobacco, grow their beards out, and say, look, we're here to protect everyone. Even though no one asked them to be there, they're just like, hey, we're going to throw our weight around. But they cherry-pick the Constitution, and that's the funny part to me, which is, hey, here's our right to bear arms, right? Second Amendment, we got right to bear arms. But the rest of the Constitution, they just toss out. Freedom of speech, nope. Freedom of assembly, nope. It goes on and on and on. And the other thing, my experience of being around militia members, is when you talk to them and start asking them questions, the facade of their purpose starts to fail. Not all of them, but many of them. And I think what happens is you get the guy, the leaders of the militias tend to be a little more organized, a little more knowledgeable, and they know that they can recruit people who aren't as knowledgeable and say, look, I know these are lonely people, they're frustrated people, etc., and this is a great way to bring them in, and then I can basically get them to do whatever I want. So it's weird. I mean, New Mexico has militias. Pretty much every state, I'm sure, has a militia group of some kind or another. There's all kinds of hypocrisy floating around, and there's really absolutely no reason whatsoever for a militia to come to a peaceful protest. And, And you know what? Toppling a statue... So what? You can rebuild the statue if they want to put it back up. It's not a cause to come and shoot people. And then, of course, instead of saying, yes, I did the shooting, yes, we came in here and we caused trouble and blah, 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 they never admit what they did. They never man up. These are the folks that are, again, waving the flag, waving the Constitution, talking macho the whole time, and the second they do something wrong and get caught, they lie. So it just doesn't add up. Like, it's just one of those baffling things in America. You've also seen a lot of stories about how the police have sort of tucked the militia groups in with a nod, a little wink, and saying, hey, buddy, we're right behind you. That is not that is not a surprise. If anyone is surprised by that, then you don't understand how these sort of systems work together. Um, it's probably not a good thing. You know, obviously, I think we uh, – I think pretty much every single human being I know is under – under the same belief that we need to reform police departments. That is a very, very tricky scenario. I certainly do not have the answers on how to do that. I think the reform of the police department comes as a small part of a massive reform of our entire culture and society, our mindset as human beings. That involves the financial industry, that involves uh, the healthcare industry, that involves the education industry. All of these pieces of the pie are connected, and we are just not willing or capable at the moment to address the situation. That's the sad part. But we've got to remain positive. It will and can happen at some point because we, obvi- we don't have a choice. We have to change the playing field because the game is over and we're still in the bleachers cheering because we don't know what else to do. All right, so let's move on. For you writers out there, um, I just got a pen that I love. It's my second one, and if pen geeks are completely welcome here. Really, all geeks are completely welcome here. I was kind of a geek in school. I was not the classic geek. I was a veiled, disguised geek. I wore parachute pants that were too loose, white high tops, an IZOD shirt with the collar up, and I had spiked hair and like a mullet in the back. I thought I was really cool. I was trying to blend in. I was a a complete gweeb. There's just no doubt about it. But I didn't really belong to any group, including the geeks, and so I kind of had friends in all the different parties. But uh, I just was just muddling my way through a really awful, awkward life. Um, But I was a writer at the same time as well. I found there's a little pen. I, I write with fountain pens now because they're the only way I can write legibly for some reason. And I, there's a little pen called the Pilot Petite, and I buy my, my pens from a place called Jet Pens. I'm sure there's a million other places to buy pens. That's the one I happen to use because I have the system down, right? That's the only thing. My wife asked me why I buy from them, and I go, because the system is down, and I don't have time to research another one. So the Pilot Petite is a little fountain pen where the cap pops off, and then you stick it on the end and use it as part of the support for the pen itself. They're tiny, and they're filled with little re- reusable capsules, which I love. I love the process of fountain pens. I love watching the ink go down and then looking over at my little stash of ink and saying, do I want green? Do I want black blue? Do I want black? Do I want blue straight? Do I want light blue? I have all these colors. The pen, it's a very, it's, this is a cheap pen. This is like a two or $3 pen total and it lasts for a long, long time. I've got two of them now because I accidentally broke the first one because I'm an idiot and didn't read the instructions, but then I fixed it because I'm just a mastermind when it comes to repairing things. It's awesome. And the one that I got was a little blue-black uh, petite, 
it's smooth, it's cheap, it's wonderful, they're great. I also have the, um, God, what's the other one that I have? Oh, Olinka, the one, the, uh, I don't know who makes it. It's an Olinka. I got a couple of those as well. And again, these are two to three dollar pens. The last one, I, the last Olinka I had before it, it exploded spectacularly and broke in half, um, it probably lasted for a year. So they're, they're great. All right, I want to bring your attention to something really quickly. Uh, I just had a conversation with these folks last week for Blurb, but I wanted to bring your, your attention to them because they've done something pretty interesting. Uh, they're called the Front Steps Project. Now, I need to give you a little background here. When, when COVID started, there were a lot of photographers who were like, what the hell am I going to do, right? And a lot of portrait photographers in particular, because if you photograph families or you photograph kids, suddenly it just ended. Now, my friend Paul, who's in Wisconsin, Paul Giroux, he's a good photographer and a longtime friend. Paul was a newspaper photographer when I met him. He was a staffer at the Arizona Republic in Phoenix. I was an intern. Paul was one of the nicer people that sort of pulled me aside. Everybody was nice to me there. But Paul, I rented a room at his house. He taught me a lot about photography. And at the time, photography was our entire life. That is what we lived and breathed. Paul was not married, did not have kids yet. I was not married I'll never have kids because I'm immature and irresponsible. That's another story. And Paul and I would like geek out on photography and printing and books and Magnum and every, every day, all night. That's what we would do. And so Paul called me right after, uh, right after COVID started and sent me a portrait. And he was like, hey, look at this portrait he shot. And it was two kids through a window of a house. And it was really beautifully done. Paul's a, Paul is a legit photographer who happens to photograph uh, kids and families, among other things. And so it was beautiful, well done. He, Paul knows what he's doing in the post. He knows how to process files. He knows how to get good color, whatever. So when he sends you a pic, it's always solid. And so I looked and I was like, wow, it's really beautiful. It's moody. And you know, you could tell immediately without a description what it was. These were kids trapped inside because of COVID. And so Paul started doing this project. Now he's not related to the Front Steps project. I do not believe the Front Steps project came to blurb through someone else. I don't know how that happened or whatever, but my job was to call them and talk to them. We're going to do some uh, interview or something. And um, they have managed through this project. It's um, two women out of out of uh, the Massachusetts area. They've done this project and it exploded because people, photographers from all over the world saw what they were doing and called them and said, how do I be a part of this? And they have managed to raise $1.8 million through the network for local communities, which is pretty astounding. If you think about it, I went on their website. I looked at some, I looked at all the stats and what, how it started and what they're about and looked at some of the motion pieces and stuff like that and who's involved in the staff and other photographers. I just wanted to bring it to your attention because it's a pretty interesting concept in the sense that here we are in the middle of COVID and I got to tip my hat to Paul as well because Paul, you know, I think Paul was the first person I saw doing this. It's, it's, that's the kind of photographer that you want to be. It's not to say that you have to go out, take chances covering COVID. It's just that you, I'll use the Marine Corps, improvise, adapt, and overcome. It's like, you've got to look at things and say, I'm a creative. My responsibility, my role in society is to be creative. I've got to adapt. I can sit at home and hate and, and bitch about every conceivable thing and demand things and whine and blah, blah, blah. And oh, by the way, there's a lot of creatives doing that. I know because I have to talk to people on a daily basis. Um, but these, the folks at Front Steps and Paul as well and a, and a variety of other photographers who are doing this around in different places, I kind of look at that and I'm like, right on. There's something, there's something inside of them that says, why be idle uh, and why not try and do something different? So it, let's say, for example, that they had tried this and it, and, and it failed and they fell flat on their face. I would still be outside clapping. I'd do, I'd do the golf clap. That's the one thing about golf that maybe I would adapt is the golf clap. And I'll tell you a golf story in a minute that's pretty funny. But anyway, if you haven't seen Front Steps Project, check it out. All right, next point, number four, is I have a van now. I think I've mentioned this about 12,000 times before. Um, I, and I'm going to do a film about the van itself. I'm not a van life person. I think that's a complete BS thing. It's just meant to attract lazy people who are never going to have a van or sitting around watching YouTube all day. But the van, I'll do a film about why I got the particular one I did. But the important part of the van is where it gets me, right? It gets me out into the world to the places that I can then make work. And that's the interesting part. So the van came with satellite radio. And satellite radio, I made a decision and I told my wife, I said, okay, we, we are only, I'm only going to allow three different stations on the van radio at any time. Number one station, Grateful Dead. Number two, Fish. 
not the aquatic species, the band, P-H-I-S-H, which sort of took over for the dead. When the dead went away, fish came along. I've never been to a fish concert. I spent three days with the Grateful Dead once. I got to photograph them, hang out with them, eat with them, photograph the concerts, photograph the fans. It was really fun. I was a young photographer. I had no idea what I was doing, but I did make some decent fo- decent pictures. And oh, by the way, I shot the entire thing on Fuji Chrome 100, even the stuff at night. And I nailed it. The exposures were dead on because I knew what I was doing at the time. That's a whole nother story. But you probably guessed that because of my mastery of all other topics. And the third is the reggae channel called The Joint, right? So if you listen to the dead or the or fish or reggae, it is impossible to experience road rage. You cannot be mad at another driver because you will be going so slow in the right lane just grooving along and the songs last forever you could drive from here to topeka and be on the same grateful dead song all you want to do is get a hacky sack and pull over and play with your friends and smoke so much weed that you are comatose that is what's great about these channels you put it on now the the songs on the reggae channel are not long they're typical reggae songs but i heard bob marley's war the other day which was a political song he did back in trenchtown And I was like, this is a great song. This is great. This makes me want to be an activist. This makes me want to be involved. And and when when the Grateful Dead comes on and Fish, again, I never went to a Fish concert, really don't know anything about their music. I just want to play hacky sack. That's all. I'm not in a hurry. I'm not doing 80 for no reason. I'm not cutting in and out of traffic. So my advice to you is to figure out how to get satellite radio and know I'm not sponsored, but I would take sponsorship. Uh, and I would, I would just listen to this. Just, just, just listen to a little reggae, listen to a little dead, listen to a little fish, and effing relax a little bit. It's great. Trust me. You can even, if you don't have a car, put it in your headphones when you're on your skateboard. It'll be great. Okay, this next point is great because I heard a comedian talking about this right after I was watching something and saying, these a-holes are ripping off the whole concept of the Black Lives Movement movement. Right, So I'm looking at it, and I'm, see- I'm looking at what I'm about to explain, and I'm like, I knew this would happen, but to see it is so shocking and awful, and I was like, well, I can't really say anything about it because everybody knows I hate social media, but here's a comedian, a really well-known guy, talking about the same thing, and that is the comedian broke down the concept, the difference between rioting, protesting, and looting. And he was talking about looting in particular, and he said, if you're an Instagrammer and you're at the protest, you're looting as well. And I was like, yes, that's exactly what I was thinking and saying to myself, because when you watch a Black Lives Matter protest, or any protest for that matter, and you see Instagrammers who have nothing to do with the movement, who are out there posing in front of the protest so that they can personally benefit from the protest, that is looting. That is stealing from the concept and the idea of what we're doing. And that was so disheartening to see. Again, I knew it would happen because Instagrammers have no shame, no mercy, nothing. They are about numbers. That is it. We know this a thousand times over. We know Facebook is the same. We know Twitter is the same. It is the most disgusting thing on the face of the earth. And yet, I would say 90% of the people I know personally are on these apps still all day, every day. They see the digital looting, looting at the protests and they go, oh my God, that's terrible. And they turn around and check their feed. I, for the life of me, and I told you this before, and I'm going to tell you this again, I'm going to mention this every week because technology is driving us apart. It is the goal of the tech giants to drive us apart. And you know why that is? Because unhappy people need more money, more material possessions, and they have more reliance on government and corporations. That is why they are driving us apart. Happy people need less money, less material possessions, and have less reliance on corporations and government. And I'm sorry, but it's bad for business. Happy people are bad for business. And these digital looters should be outed on Instagram by everybody that's on there and say, what are you doing? We have to draw the line at some point. As we watch our country circle the drain, every single day the vortex gets a little faster and everybody ignores it. Everybody makes an excuse. 
I'm only using it for one thing. I'm only using it for marketing. Sorry. You know, you can't be a little bit pregnant. You're either your fingers are dirty or they're not dirty. And it's just, uh, it's just so disheartening to see this. I mean, you could see it coming from outer space. They, SpaceX looked down and said, here come the IGers. Oh, here's another opportunity. Black Lives Pro, you know, Black Lives Matter. Let's let's get out and make some uh, let's let's boost our following. It's just sucks. All right, making prints. I get a lot of questions. This is point number six. I get a lot of questions about making prints. I make prints all the time. Uh, I cannot fathom doing a project and not printing it. That is just such a foreign concept to me. I would if I wasn't gonna print it, I wouldn't do the project in the first place. That's just the frank way it is. I can't imagine not doing that. I don't make prints and books and magazines for other people. I make them for myself. I enjoy the process. It feels like coming full circle. Uh, a lot of people who haven't done this, and believe it or not, there's two generations of photographers now who really haven't printed their work. I've talked to plenty of photographers who've been out there for years who've never printed a single image that they've ever done. That is not surprising to me anymore. I know it's a reality. And people are like, well, if I'm going to get started, I need something fancy. I got to invest in printing. I've got to do this. I've got to do that. Here's the truth. I have a Canon Pro 1000 printer in my office. It's not mine, but I have it. I've never plugged it in. It's holding my art supplies. I'm going to do a blog post here coming up about what the inside of my office looks like and what I have laying around because I thought it would be entertaining for people. What I end up using on a daily basis, it's pretty funny. It's all over the map. I did not, I, I, there's a bottle of Bailey's Irish cream on the counter next to me, which God knows where that came from. It could have been in this house from the time we rented it. I have no idea. That is not in my pictures of the office because I don't know where that came from. But all the other stuff is in there. And I... So I have a Canon Pro 1000. I've never used it. I have a 10-year-old Canon, let me think what it is. It's like an MG830 something horribly named, terribly confusing little angry printer that also doubles as a scanner. It's not good. Like if you're scanning an office document, great. I, I scan all my expense report stuff on it. It works like a charm. I'll occasionally scan a little piece of artwork or something. It works like a charm. But for as a printer, it sucks. It doesn't matter. And oh, by the way, guess what paper I use? Copier paper, whatever the cheapest paper I have. Occasionally I'll print the postcards, the Hanamiel, the good stuff, but I still use the same printer. They probably faded by the time they get to the people I'm mailing them to. My point is, you don't need anything. You could probably get a free printer if you called around your friends and said, hey, does anybody have a printer they're not using? You could probably get one. Just like you could probably get, well, prior to, prior to COVID, you could probably get a bicycle that way too. Now I think they're much harder to come by. Uh, but you don't need anything. And I've seen this like gear acquisition syndrome, the gas syndrome that so many people have about camera equipment. I've got, I've got a Sony a7 III with this lens and this lens and this lens, and I'm going to do this, and I think I need this lens, whatever. And I'm like, no, you don't need any of that. You know, no, 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 no matter what people say, you don't need it, you don't need it, you don't need it, you don't need it. And same thing about printer. It just, it doesn't matter. Just print it and just get cheap and start. And once it starts, once you start, you break the camel's back of printing, you will never stop because it's so damn cool. And then you start thinking, oh, I can modify the print after the fact, or I can do something to the paper before I put it in the machine and then modify it before it's printed. And then maybe I can do it after. And you realize it's just endless what you can do. And it's really fun and it makes you more creative and it's tangible. It makes you commit to a certain image or idea instead of just yapping about it in some online community. Uh, had a, okay, point number seven, had a very interesting uh, conversation a couple of weeks ago with a filmmaker who's out of L.A. and Hawaii. He did a short film that's not public yet, but he did a short film about someone else I know that someone I've mentioned on this podcast before, a photographer that I really like, an atypical human being and an atypical photographer. But I called this guy. We spent over an hour on the phone uh, FaceTiming. And I'd never met him before. We talked about filmmaking. We talked about photography. We talked about the subject matter of what his film was about. I talked to him about AG23 because I would love to have him involved in some way. And, and I would love at some point to try to figure out a way to get funding for him to keep working on this film because I think it's a very cool film. And the idea of mastery came up. And we were talking about young photographers wanting immediate success without having ever learned how to do what it is they're looking to get success in. And this concept of mastery, and I think I mentioned this before, but on Netflix, there's a film called Takumi, which is the Japanese uh, word. I believe it's the Japanese word for 60,000 hours dedicated to one topic. So in essence, a, a mastery. Like here in the U.S., I think we're at 10,000 hours. We go, if you, if you can do it for 10,000 hours, you're, you're a master. But Japan just kind of goes, <laughs> Americans, <laughs> please 
kids, whatever. You guys never learned. And they do 60,000, which is not. And, and, and I'm sure the Germans are up there too. These, these countries that make like masterful machinery, the Mercedes-Benz, you know, Japan, my, my petite pilot pen is probably Japanese. I don't know, but I hope it is because I love the Japanese aesthetic. I love the concept of mastery. Um, uh, Jiro Loves Sushi is another film that I think really points to the same thing. I think mastery is something that every single person listening to this podcast, and myself included, I think it's an attainable, I think it's attainable. And it's attainable no matter what age you are. I really think it is. And I think what all of us need to pull from the concept of mastery are, is twofold. One is mindset. And two is time. The sense of time and your, your, uh, your mindset of saying, I need to block out everything and everyone and I'm going to deep, deep dive into my own soul and subconscious, and I'm going to connect with what it is that I feel uh, connected to or passionate about. And I hate using the word passionate because every like hipster throws that word around like they're, like they're knit hats. But it is. What, are you, what burns inside of you? What are you interested in? And, and when I thought about mastery and I thought about the sense of your mindset and the time involved, I also have talked to a bunch of young folks over the past couple of years, including some related to me. And I once asked, like, what are you interested in? And the response came back immediate, and it was nothing. I said, well, what are your interests? Nothing. What are you interested in? Nothing. And I, I was so taken aback by that, that here's a person with their phone in their hand 24 hours a day watching Instagram that had no connection with the actual world, no connection with themselves, with their own mind. Who, what are they? Who are you? What do you believe, and how do those beliefs make you feel? And I think mastery... You cannot even begin to turn your car towards the mastery highway without addressing those other questions first. Who are you? What do you believe? And how do those beliefs make you feel? And that is why we have so few masters. That's why our modern culture isn't producing masters. We're producing pop stars. That's what we're producing. We're producing one-hit wonders who do something interesting and then spin off and they're gone. And so mastery, I think for, if you're listening to this podcast and you have the cojones to get through an hour of this, you have the, you have the ability to master something. Maybe it's the ability to never listen to my podcast again, whatever. Just think about it. Think about it. Take your time. Okay. So, uh, my eighth point is about my YouTube channel. Uh, I am in the process of monetizing it. I got something in the mail yesterday from AdSense and I, I think this is what happens. I don't honestly know. So I get, the e I get the email from YouTube, you can now monetize. I say, okay, I turn on the monetization and I forget about it. So yesterday I go on there and it looks like it says your estimated revenue is like $30. And I'm like, wow, I guess I don't need a job anymore. And so I'm looking at this, but it says your, your payment is being hung up and you have to go into this AdSense thing. They literally mail you something in the mail, which I got yesterday, and it's a key of some sort, and I have to plug it in, and then they verify, and, and then all the cash just rolls in, and then I call Mossack Fonseca in Panama, and I start my shell game and hide as much money as possible. That is the American corporate way. 80% of corporations in America last year, some insane number, uh, did not pay any tax whatsoever or... 80% of the top, the hundred biggest or whatever it is, it's terrorizing. It's horrifying what we allow these people to do. And oh, by the way, just in case you were wondering, you corporations in the United States now have the same rights as a human being. I'm not sure if you saw that legislation sneak through a decade or so ago. But yes, a corporation is now considered the same as a human being and they have the same rights because we are that corrupt. But I am monetizing the channel because I am a shameless human being. No, I'm doing it because um, I can, number one, and I'm curious, but also because being on YouTube, I've already, f I've already figured out that this YouTube experience for several people I know would be a very, very smart path for them to take. They could do unbelievably well on YouTube, and they would be very successful, and it would potentially give them the ability to be better creatives and better artists because it would provide enough income to free up something for them. That's, that's what my plan is. But the thing about it is I am not beholden to YouTube. I'm coming into YouTube with all the power and control because I don't need something from YouTube. And so a lot of people, I would say the vast majority of people on YouTube, at least let's keep this in the photography space. The vast majority of people who are broadcasting about photography are trying to game the system to get followers, to get subscriptions and likes so that they can profit. And I, I don't care. 
So someone wrote me and said, Hey, I came to your channel because of photography. And now you're talking about yoga and cycling. And don't you think you're spreading yourself too thin, which is a totally valid question. Because if I was trying to game the system or job the system, I couldn't or wouldn't do any of that. I wouldn't talk about yoga and cycling and I'm getting ready to do a Lyme disease film here because people are asking me to, you know, hey, you've got a chronic illness. My wife does. Um, please do a film because maybe you learned something that she hasn't and maybe it will help her. And I'm like, absolutely, I will do that because it's important. And there's a whole, whole history of corruption around Lyme disease that's pretty fascinating as well. So I'm not gaming it. I have power and control. And that is something I learned a long time ago. Being a photographer is if you don't, if you don't determine what you're doing as, a, as your job and how you're approaching it, the, the industry will control it for you. They will turn you into someone you don't even recognize. And I've seen it happen a thousand times. The professional photographers in the world, the real professionals, would not take time to watch my YouTube channel. That's, I mean, and I'm not offended by that at all. I don't watch, I don't, I mean, I probably have, but I'm trying to think of the last time I watched a YouTube channel by a high level professional photographer. I don't think most of them have YouTube channels because they're too busy working. Um, I did watch a Jimmy Chin film. I think Jimmy Chin is a pretty interesting character to, uh, and I don't, I've never met him. I don't know him as a human being, but if you look at, he started as a climber and a skier. That's how I knew him a long time ago. When I say knew him, I knew of him because of his skiing and his climbing exploits, not his photography exploits. And if you look at what he's done now, he won an Academy Award. He's got tons of sponsors. He has a beautiful home in Wyoming. Uh, he is probably has more work than he can possibly get done. And he has been consistently good for decades, right? So that is a person that I always keep my, my radar on, my ear to the ground, because he's doing, he's doing different things. He's, a, he's kind of a pioneer, if you want to throw that out there, right? So if he has a YouTube, I, well, I don't think he has a YouTube channel, but there are films about him on YouTube. But the truth is, he's making films, they're winning Academy Awards. He's not spending that time like me making YouTube films. He's making films that go into theaters that win Academy Awards that probably bring him more opportunities than you can possibly wrap your head around. That's somebody you may want to pay attention to. So um, I am going to spread myself thin on YouTube. Again, it is a grand experiment. It's 10 years too late. I mean, YouTube and the code and the algorithm and everything else, they're never going to allow people to crack it like they once did. So there's no way that I'm going to be financially independent by using YouTube. That was never my intention. So I, you don't, you might not know what's coming on my YouTube channel, and that is uh, by intent. I just wanted to bring that up. Um, point number nine is about being fixated on photography. I mentioned this before when when I was a young photographer in Arizona and I was living with Paul Giroux. I don't mean living, living with Paul Giroux. I mean renting a room at his house, not living, 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 that kind of living together. But just, you know, we were friends and I had a room in his house. I called it the radon room because I think there was a radon leak because sometimes I would wake up and I was so, I felt dead and I would take, and I normally wake up like that and I'm up, I got up at five today, boom, on my bike, 40 miles, done, moving on. But back then, I would have to crawl across the floor of the room to get to the door because it felt like I was dying. And so, uh, but I, it was, the rent was the right price, so it worked out in the end. I think I was too fixated on photography, and I've mentioned this point before, but uh, there's a healthy fixation and there's an unhealthy fixation. You've got you've to want it more than anything you've ever wanted if you're going to work as a professional photographer, but you, you, you can't just be someone who presses the button. You've got to be more, and I just want to mention that again because I keep running into folks who are so obsessed with it and themselves that they turn off everyone around them and they don't understand they're doing that. Uh, yesterday on the, on the YouTube Live, I said to people, hey, I have an experiment for you. You're going to reach out to another creative. You're going to call somebody that you know or don't know, and you're going to ask them how they're doing. And you're going to ask them what's working well for them. You're going to ask them what they need that they don't have. What's the one thing that's holding you back? And if you, what's the one thing that would get you to the next level of your career? And then you're going to try to find a way to help them get that. Yes, your competitors. Yes, fellow photographers, the people that you're stabbing in the back while they're not looking. Those are the people that you're going to call. Preferably someone you don't know. They may hang up on you. They may threaten you. They may say you're a clown. They may, there's a lot of animosity out there, but that's okay. You're going to keep calling until you get someone who understands it. The second thing you're going to do is write a letter. And the third thing you're going to do is take one day a week off. 
of thinking about yourself and your business. You're going to, you're just not going to do it. You're not even going to plug in. You're going to get up. You're not going to listen to this podcast. You're not going to look at your phone. You're not going to plug your computer in. You're just going to go live your life outside and you're going to go do something unrelated because you're going to reset the battery of, of narcissism and selfishness for one day. And I use those terms because I was narcissistic and selfish when I was a photographer. I became a, instantly became a better human the moment I stopped working as a photographer. That's not a very good feeling to, to realize that, but it's the truth. So that's what you're going to do. You're going to reach out to somebody else and you're going to say, how can I help you? Now, I have to say, I did this YouTube live yesterday and this morning I got an email from the Middle East and as somebody who I've been in communication with for the past couple of weeks, and he said, uh, I'm reaching out to see how you're doing. What are you up to? I listened to your YouTube live. I thought that was great advice. So I'm reaching out to you, meaning me. How are you doing? What do you need? What's happening? And I was like, that's really cool. Because most of the time people email and they're, and, and I get this, especially since I've been on YouTube, they email, my in inbox in the morning is filled. And for some reason, and I got to talk to Fleming about this, the emails that I get in the morning all come through my photo shelter email account, which frankly, I didn't even know I had a photo shelter email. So I don't know what the hell's happening. I'm a tech idiot. So I've got to flip over that email address somehow. But anyway, people write and, they, and they've been overwhelmingly flattering over the last six months of people writing and saying, wow, you're doing something on YouTube that no one else is doing. You're offering this real information for us. It's been very helpful. Most of these people have written and said, oh my God, I'm making prints for the first time. I've made my magazine for the first time. I'm collaborating for the first time. That makes me feel great. Oftentimes they ask for things too, like, will you look at my work? Or, you know, they have questions. Can you tell me about this? Or what do you think about my project? That's totally fine because I did the same thing, man. I was a question machine when I got started. I would ask anyone that stopped within my perimeter if they could, you know, help me with photography. So it's pretty great. But don't get too crazy with your own fixation. Fixate on being human and being well-rounded first, and then drop that photo down to the second slot, position number two, if you will. Like, you don't always need to be on the pole, right? You can win from being in the back of the field. That's my point. All right, last third to last point, uh, John McPhee, the author. I just want to mention him again. I love John McPhee. I might literally be in love with John McPhee. He has written over 100 articles for The New Yorker. And oh, by the way, if you read John's book, draft number four, about writing, he talks about the research required to get your work into a New Yorker piece. And it is legendarily difficult in terms of fact-checking and getting your work in there. He's done it over 100 times. He has probably written 30 books, 40 books, 50 books. Every single book of John McPhee I've ever read has been fantastic. Read, people read. That is what I am telling you. Read. I've read two books this week already, and I'm reading a third right now, which is about Samantha Power. It's her biography, her memoir, and it's really good. And I have to admit something. I had no idea who she was when I started reading the book. And then it came to me afterwards, but when I saw her name and I saw the memoir, I just decided to read it because I said, I don't know who this person is. But And then I was like, oh, yeah, I know who it is now. But it's really well-written, and it's really good, and it's educational, and it's fantastic. And John McPhee is, if you're going to start with someone who is offering you a pyramid of logic down below, you could not do better than John McPhee. Okay, second to last point. Both of the last points are about sports, but you art snobs do not sign off because one of these is incredibly snobby. Not really, but it kind of feels that way when you first learn about it. Okay. Golf to me is nails on a chalkboard. Way back in the day, I assisted for a photographer who shot professional golf and we would, you know, he'd have like a 600, a 400, a 300, a 70 to 200, a 20 to 35. We had all this gear and I would hang with him and then we would photograph a hole and then you had to pick up and run to the next hole and running with all that stuff is not easy, but golfers were overall overwhelmingly a-holes in the grand scheme of athletic, professional athletics. I photographed professional baseball players, professional football players, professional soccer players, professional tennis players, professional golfers. Uh, golfers and baseball players were by far the worst. They were spoiled little tyrants, most of them. And, and it dawned on me very early on, I, was, I had got assigned to photograph three, very, three of the most famous baseball players of all time in separate assignments, four actually. Five, now that I think about it, five of the b most well-known players of all time in separate incidents. One of them was a peach. He was a gem, invited me in the house, super cool, great guy. The other four were complete a-holes. And I'm saying they went way out of their way 
to be mean and cruel and awful, not just to me, but to everyone around them. Everyone was terrified of them. They were on eggshells. And I was like, why would anyone put up with these people? Well, they put up with it because they can hit a ball over a fence and it makes a lot of money. That's why people put up with it. Golfers were really bad too. And there were certain golfers that had just, even within a reputation of being spoiled little tyrants from country clubs, there were other, there were golfers that were even rumored amongst all of them in general to be worse than everyone else. And one of these we had an encounter with, and he was a horrible human being, just a terrible guy who was, you could tell, incredibly wealthy, incredibly isolated, probably didn't have any friends, great golfer, hit a ball with a crooked stick and he could put it in a little hole and then get in a cart and, or waddle around behind it. It was very impressive. He was horrible. And so I don't like golf and I don't like watching golf on television. I don't have a TV, but hypothetically play along here. I have seen golf before in hotels and stuff. And when golf comes on, I kind of feel like we failed as a, as, a, as a human being. Now, again, the game itself is fine. What people have done with it is a whole other scenario. So I don't watch golf. I would never watch golf. And I've never seen a single golf YouTube anything because I have no interest in it. However, there is another sport that I have found myself caught in the tractor beam. And that's not a space station. That's a Death Star. I am caught in the world of professional chess. Chess. Yes, Magnus Carlsen is my perpetual hero. Now, he looks abrasive. I'll be honest. He's not always the nicest guy on the block. Chess players are kind of temperamental. Little, They're like Ferrari engines, right? You better have a mechanic on standby. It's going to go fast, and it's going to be impressive, but there's going to be an oil leak at some point, and you better have some extra gaskets because you're going to have to fix it. I have been watching Magnus Carlsen play chess on YouTube and just trash lesser human beings, right? Now, he, I think I haven't seen a film yet where he's lost, but he's the world chess prodigy, as everyone knows. He's a world chess champion. I think he was champion or something when he was, he was at that level when by the time he was like 11 or 12. He's a savant. He can remember every game he's ever played. He can play 50 games simultaneously with his back turned to the, he'll have like, I think it was like, I saw what the one I saw was 20 games of chess going at one time. He has his back turned and he's playing each game simultaneously with 20 different people. It's kind of scary. But it's fascinating to watch people play chess. And what I love about chess, which is very different from golf, is that if you go to New York City, if you go to a park in New York City, whether it, regardless of socioeconomic income level, status, race, chess is the equalizer. Chess is available to everyone. And I love going to parks in cities and watching uh, a, a complete United Nations of humanity huddled around their chess boards playing. Now you have Mahjong in Asia, you've got, uh, you've got Go in other parts of the world, which is very similar. Chess is, it's fantastic. And there's, for some reason, and I suck at chess. I think I lost once in chess and whatever the minimum amount of moves possible to lose in chess, I lost against my uncle, who is a terrible chess player. He's horrible. He barely knows the rules, and he beat me once in like four moves. I was, I was in elementary school, but still, I remember it. It stung. It stung like it was yesterday. It's etched into my soul. I haven't even talked to him since then because I hate him now because that's what we do when we lose. But anyway, I've been watching chess. I love it. I'm not going to play chess because I know how bad I am. I play Go online, a little digital version of Go. I've never won a game. I've never even come close to winning a game. The games I think I'm winning, I typically lose by even more than the ones that I think I've ruined it from step one. I don't even know how the game works. I don't. That's a completely honest admission. I don't know how Go works. I'm fascinated by how, how complex it is, and I'm fascinated by how I could be so bad. Uh, I played a video game once with my nephew when he was just able to speak, right? He could barely speak, and he was playing a video game that had like 11 buttons on the controller, and he wanted to play with me, and I said, you little brat, I'm going to stomp you into non-existence. I am going to punish you. I just started talking trash immediately because he was like, he was still half jelly. His head hadn't even completely formed yet, and he had this controller, and we were playing this motocross game, and he was destroying me, and 30 seconds in, he stopped. He paused it. I didn't even know you could do that. He paused it, looked up at me with this perplexing look with an eyebrow up, and looked at me and said, how can you possibly be this bad? That's how bad I am at going chess. Just wanted to admit that. Last point is another sp sport-related point. 
I got to tip my hat to one angry SOB, Greg Popovich, the coach of the San Antonio Spurs. Now, I lived in San Antonio for a long time. Uh, the Spurs are my team when it comes to basketball. They have been since I was in elementary school. When I would go to the San Antonio Arena before they had the, the stadium that they play in now, they had, I forget what it was called, the Freeman Coliseum or something like that. And I had the, my dad and I would have the cheap, cheap, cheap seats that, where we had a giant pillar right in front of us. And I would watch George Gervin battle it out with Larry Bird. And at one end of the court, I would have to lean to the right to see around the pillar. And when they would come to the other side, we would lean to the left to see around the pillar. And the Iceman, George Gervin, would just light it up. But Bird always won because the Spurs sucked at that point. They just had Gervin. And he was dreamy, man. In my room in San Antonio, in my school, in my room when I was an elementary school kid, I had a picture of George Gervin, whose nickname was the Iceman, sitting on a giant chair made out of ice and like a silver tracksuit. And he just, he looked like the Bob Marley of the, of the NBA. He was just so smooth. He was dreamy. He was my guy. So when the Spurs got good, it was really great to see. And San Antonio is a good, great sports city. They rallied around the Spurs like crazy. Uh, and so they hired a guy named Greg Popovich. And if you don't know anything about Greg Popovich, forget everything you know about coaches in general, professional level coaches, because as we've seen over the past couple of weeks, even at the college level and up, coaches are notorious for making idiotic decisions in a public space, right? They say dumb things. They do dumb things. Popovich does not. And I just want to say something. The San Antonio Spurs have considerably the most incredible legacy of any team in any team sport in history. And this is from Little Dinky San Antonio. The Spurs were a machine for over 20 years. And get this, nobody got in trouble. Nobody would go out and say stupid things. Their superstar was a guy who never got in trouble. He didn't buy 15,000 cars and 15,000 houses and go broke and do all kinds of stupid stuff and get arrested or whatever. There's tons of problems in professional athletics. We know that. Popovich kept people in line and they respected him. The other coaches respect him. But the point I'm bringing up about him is from day one, Popovich spoke out about Trump. Popovich spoke out about wrong, things that were wrong in society. He is not afraid. He's not bashful. He's not afraid of Trump's Twitter account. He, Popovich is intelligent. When you hear him speak, you go, oh, He's knowledgeable about a lot more than basketball. He knows how the world works, and he has been vehemently opposed to what Donald Trump stands for. And he said something last week or the week before. I cannot remember exactly what it was, but it was a logical takedown of the nonsense that is Donald Trump and the storm of corruption around him. So if you don't know who Greg Popovich is and you're down on sports or you think that there's that sports are filled with knuckleheads and there's no intelligent people, there are a million intelligent people in the sporting world. Uh, athletes from, from every demographic, every race, every creed, every culture. Sport is a wonderful thing. It really is. You don't have to be a professional. You don't have to dedicate your life to it. But sports is a great way, sport in general, is a great way, it's a great tool to learn a variety of different things. And when I see and hear somebody like Popovich, uh, Steve Kerr is another one up in Golden State that's often been vocal in a good way. You've got a, a lot of other coaches that do this as well, but Popovich, because I've, I've, I've been a Spurs fan for so long, uh, is the one that jumps out. And he's been very uh, brave in the face of, you know, most people speak out about Trump and then Trump just stops whatever he's doing his job basically, and just goes off on Twitter rants about people. Uh, and Popovich knows he's impervious because he has the upper hand because Popovich is smart. Trump is not. So that is the last point. Did I have a story this week? Do I have any photography stories? God, I have so many, but we're already at an hour and, um, I'm sick of telling my own photography stories. I have not been out shooting in a long, long, long time. That is not because I don't want to shoot. I do have two projects ongoing, one here in New Mexico, one in California. I am dying to get back to the one in California, but that's not going to happen for a while for a variety of different reasons. But, um, I'm not shooting as much as I would like to, but the thing is blurb keeps me incredibly busy. So between blurb and AG 23, 
which is again about to, AG23 is about to kick up again because I'm getting all of the mailing, all the packaging that I'm going to be sending out the zines in. So I'm going to be going into my database, which I'm working on later today. Again, I've been building a separate AG23 category inside my, my contact database, and I will be mailing each one of these people a copy of the zine with a handwritten note and an envelope with a wax seal and a t-shirt potentially, depending on how many t-shirts I can get and, and who they're going to, et cetera. Uh, and just saying, hey, I think, you know, we met years ago. I think you're an interesting person. You're doing cool things. And I want you to see what this project of what these, what these people, these contributors are up to. In fact, I ran into a photographer this morning who uh, I was about, I don't know, 20 miles out on my bike, ran into a guy that I thought I recognized. Turned out he's a photographer here in town that I'd met a couple of years ago, but we couldn't figure out how to, I, I didn't remember what his name was. Anyway, we reconnected this morning. We talked for half an hour. And he mentioned someone that he knew in the finance world who is a guy that only communicates through the mail. He only writes letters. And he said he's been doing this his entire career. He's an incredibly high-level finance guy. And I said, I need to be able to – is there any way that you can get me an address because th that is the person I want to have the zine. I want to put this work in front of that guy because he will get it. And when it comes in a envelope with a wax stamp and a handwritten note, God, I got to have somebody else write it though, because they'll never read my writing. But you know what I mean. In theory, it will work. And then we can promote the living crap out of the people in the zine. That is the goal. Let me remind you. AG23. Silver on the periodic table. 23 was the address of the first Explorers Club in New York. 23 West 67th Street in New York. Anyway, long story. The goal is to promote the people who put work into the zine, right, which is what we're doing now. I'm getting ready to work on the first film about AG23 contributors and why we like the work that they did. So anyway, the zine going out via mail is going to happen soon. I should have all my packaging on Monday. So I was going to go to Colorado on Monday, and I'm not because that package is coming, and I would need to be here to start sending these babies out. So anyway, I will talk to you next week. Good luck. Have a great weekend, and uh, do something good with your life. Will ya?